Close your eyes, Josh. Take a deep breath and relax. Focus on the spot in the center of your forehead. The universe is deathless. Is deathless because having no finite self, it stays infinite. A sound man, by not advancing himself, stays the further ahead of himself. Welcome to Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series. There's something wrong with this place. I'm not imagining it. I can feel it. It's, it's like a sickness. Hosted by Stuart. He sees things no living person is supposed to see. Arnie. This is nothing like being dead. I know. And Marjorie. Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick. Not sure if you're ready to hear this yet, but unfortunately, I can't waste any time easing you into it. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. That's fine, gentlemen. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Insidious, The Red Door, starring Ty Simpkins, Patrick Wilson, Haim Abbas, Sinclair Daniel, Andrew Astor, and Rose Byrne, directed by Patrick Wilson. This is the Now Playing co-hosts whose cooties are good cooties, Arnie. And Stuart. And Marjorie. And we're back in the further for the fifth time. Did you guys think it was ever going to happen? Here we are again. Honestly, I forget, because of the shared casting of Patrick Wilson, I forget which are Insidious movies and which are Conjuring movies. But this is the other one. You forget. I get them mixed up in my head, and it isn't until I start watching them. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is The Conjuring. I got it. Mm. Yeah. But they blend together so much. Where's Lorraine? Oh, wait, not this one. Yeah. Well, but... Lynn Shay's dog is named Warren, which I think is a tribute to The Conjuring. So it's all screwed up in my head. I know it's kind of the same universe, but it might as well just be a whole movie series and they're all just blended. To me, this is the one with Lynn Shay. However, this movie is the one without Lynn Shay just about, so it's going to screw with my head even more. It's interesting you bring that up because I, as it's been my mission this summer, as we go back to new installments of old franchises, have gone back and looked at the old Insidious movies and kind of came to an unpopular, like, opinion. I feel like this should be Lynn Shay's franchise. I'm actually a little bit bummed that we have to go back to those sort of boring Lamberts. Like, I think that's the selling point. We're supposed to be excited. They finally got Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne back. But in my humble estimation, part three and four are the better stories. I think that the reason they did three and four was because it should have been a Lynn Shay. I think they knew what they had with making just her like ghost story adventures and they realized they shouldn't have killed her off in the first movie. Mm, yes, they definitely have regret about killing her off. And I also think there's a factor of like Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne are real actors and like cost money and getting them back is a bigger ask 
Probably. Yeah, I did no favors to this franchise. It's not my mission to rewatch every installment of every series we're doing, but I felt like for Insidious, it had been a long time, five years since the last one, and I should refresh myself, especially since this is the return of the Lamberts. I knew one and two pretty well, because I'd watched those again before part four. I couldn't remember anything about part three or part four. And honestly, we've been pretty cold on the Insidious series. I also went back and listened to our podcast. It's eked out a few recommends here and there. Stuart, you've ended up recommending one and three, and I've recommended two and four, but these are all pretty tepid recommendations. And binge watching the series made me really dread going for part five. I gotta say, what? Rewatching them all has made me just, I'm not a fan of this series. And so spending so much time in the further, I was like, oh God, I gotta go back. You're the eternal optimist. You're always excited to go back to every <laughs> series for some stupid reason that you'll invent on the spot. Like, oh, I want to see this. I mean, I get what you're saying. Here's what I would say. This was a whole lot better 10 years ago. When I saw Insidious back in the day, it was in a climate where horror was found footage and torture porn. So it felt unique. It was like, oh, here's something old fashioned. It reminded me of my favorite childhood movie, Poltergeist. We don't get something like this every day. Well, 10 years later, we get this every day. I mean, there is a Conjuring or Insidious wannabe all the time now. And so this style. There's a Conjuring all the time. You don't even need a wannabe. There's just a Conjuring spinoff all the time. Yeah, what was special about it and made it stand out and recommendable is kind of evaporated over time. And like I said, this family and re-watching one and two, what is there to like? Other than the actors themselves, it is just a hollow shell of a family. I much more gravitate towards Elise. And so, yeah, they regret killing her. And I knew that with Patrick Wilson directing this one, he was not going to put the focus on her the way that chapter three and chapter four had focused on her. I did a lot of research because I was very curious about what was the impulse to return to the Lamberts. I mean... And did they have to give Patrick Wilson directing gigs... Yes. ...in order to get him back? Let me just answer you in by saying that's obviously why he came back. That was the reason. Whatever he's going to say to the press, he would not have done this movie if they had not allowed him to direct his first movie. Yeah, that's right. He said that to the press. Oh, good. I'm glad he's <laughs> honest. I like him more now. But maybe we're overlooking the real reason is he agreed to do it. It's because they let him sing the ending song. Oh, we'll get there. Yes. <laughs> that was uh, a treat. Not every day. You don't hear Alfred Hitchcock singing the theme to Psycho, uh, you know, at the end. That's <laughs> Patrick Wilson called himself out in an interview. He said it may be the first time since John Carpenter with <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China that a director has sung the theme song for the movie. Wow. Carpenter actually sang on that? That's completely repressed. Like, they must have done a, some kind of hypnosis. Carl came in and hypnotized me. I don't remember that at all. Okay. No, I'm trusting Patrick Wilson's quote on that one because I don't remember <laughs> it either. But yes. here's how this movie came about. Lee Winnell had an idea for a story that would return to the Lambert family and focus 100% on Dalton in college. And just to remind folks, Lee Winnell is the writer of the first couple who graduated to being the director and now makes other movies like Invisible Man. Yeah, and he's still a co-writer or he gets a story by credit on this one and produced by. And Blumhouse reached out to Rose Byrne and Patrick Wilson 
because if you are going to do a Lambert story, they want to see, can we get the Lamberts back? Otherwise, we're not even going to bother writing the script. And Patrick Wilson said he wouldn't have done it, but his agent knew Patrick Wilson was looking for his first directing project. And so they negotiated and Patrick Wilson was supposed to just cameo like Rose Byrne. He was supposed to have a couple of scenes in the movie. And by directing, he became, I'd say, the second lead of the movie. Mm, Yeah. In fact, I would even say that by taking on the reins of director, almost everyone else, it's not the story of the Lamberts. Poor Kaylee. Maybe Kaylee gets even (laughs) less screen time now that she's grown up. (laughs) I put the same thing in my notes is that Kaylee is a disappearing child. Yeah, she's like the anti-Caroline. The ghosts want everyone but her. We don't want the little blonde child. But it was supposed to be all Dalton at college. It makes sense. Ty Simpkins, he credits the first Insidious film with giving him his rise to stardom. He'd go on to be in Iron Man 3, and he was really good in The Whale late last year. Uh, you can say that. I didn't think he was that good. But yes, he has maintained some kind of visibility more than Haley Joel Osment. Yeah, so <laughs> giving him his first lead role brings him back to the franchise. And yes, this was supposed to be entirely his movie. But after being hired as director, Patrick Wilson went and said, if I'm doing this movie, I want to deal with the family trauma that comes out of the end of Insidious Chapter 2 and use a horror movie as a vehicle to discuss family trauma and a father-son relationship. Which is why you don't have actors hired to direct. Because guess what an actor wants to focus on? Themselves! Me! (laughs) I think this should be more about me and what I was doing in movies three movies ago. Yeah, I mean, really? I mean, to be fair, chronologically speaking, this movie, by picking up where it does with chapter two is, you know, the last time we saw this family, but they are going to spend so much time and literally go back and replay so much footage from chapter two. I'll just go ahead and say that was the worst one. Like that's the one I don't want to revisit the most. My favorite of the series. Wow. It is the highest grossing, so maybe you're not alone, but I felt like that one was super stupid. And I still like its shining ripoff father wants to kill the kids vibe. It's still, having rewatched all four, it was the one I had the most fun during. I really had trouble getting through three again, I gotta say. Really? Okay. I mean, I feel like one, three, and four, I probably could have given a recommend of four. They're all kind of this mediocre, okay-ish thing, but two, I would just call flat out bad. Yeah. I don't know. I thought one was better because I rewatched it with Arnie and I thought it was better than I remembered. After like the first like 10 minutes and I figured out it wasn't The Conjuring. Mm. Two was okay. I really didn't like three. It just didn't mesh well, I think. Four was a little bit better in the right direction. And again, though, more Lin Shay. And I think that's you know, the key to some of this. Apparently the producers didn't think so because when they decided to do part five, they have no Lin Shay. Well, she's here, tokenism. But yes, it's not a fixture in the way that she was in three. She's not carrying this franchise anymore. And again, if you have one of the actors directing, they're not going to put that spotlight on her. But also worth pointing out, box office. If there's a reason to go back to the Lamberts, the highest grossing one by far was chapter two. The second highest, Chapter one, they don't make as much money with a 70-year-old in the lead. And so you want to kind of get back to that. And it has the chance, now that Ty Simpkins is all grown up, I mean, yeah, he's 
the youth market that horror movies tend to target. So maybe this franchise can be restored as it looks back on the last 10 years of the installments. It's also possibly laying the ground for what he can do with it in the future. I know Patrick Wilson's not going to come back, but Ty Simpkins might. Well, there was some discussion before this movie came out. You know, one of the things Jason Blum had teased is he wanted Insidious to cross over with Sinister and have a mixed movie. We'd have Justin sitting here with us in a fourth chair weird as a crossover between those two franchises that might still happen i could see yeah and then maybe some purge people break in at the end i can see that blumhouse would want to create a marvel universe but then what jason blum has been saying at the premiere of part five here and things is this is closing the book on insidious they have no more plans for insidious films when they made the previous four they were always talking what can we do for the next one what can we do for the next one this one they're viewing it as the end they're saying maybe in 10 years if somebody gets an idea but they're going to rest this franchise after this installment yeah uh, so they say we'll see how the box office is and if the box office is reflective of my Thursday afternoon showing, it's doing well. I was surprised. I go at the dead time when opening day, four o'clock, most people aren't off work, barely out of school, and usually I have the place to myself. This thing was jam-packed, and it was uh, families. It was all ages and people I wouldn't expect to see in an insidious film sitting side by side. The first time we saw it, the theater was decently full, and it was mostly a little bit of people our age, some groups of teenagers, and there was one guy in the theater that guffawed at a lot of the funny parts, like instead of the places that were supposed to be chuckles, like he really thought this was funny. Mm. Really thought it was funny. Okay. And then the second time we saw it, I saw a lot more kids with their parents, like maybe 10 to 12, that kind of age, with their parents. It was a matinee versus the first first opening night we saw it at like 6 30 or something so that's probably to account for it but the matinee was full of kids with their parents yeah i appreciated that diversity i had a kid in front of me and then behind me i had a very old man who was grumpy who was like <laughs> is this supposed to be scary and saying things his wife was always <laughs> shushing him throughout the movie so i appreciated having the enthusiasm and the reticence all around me it was a good crowd to watch the movie with how is it going to do? Yeah, obviously a not recommend from the old guy behind you. You did ask about the box office, though. You know, I said Jason Blum said before this movie came out that he was putting this series on arrest. I think he's probably fast-tracking part six because yeah. this movie dethroned Indiana Jones. Ouch. It took number one at the box office. This movie cost $16 million to make, and in the U.S. alone made $32 million opening weekend. <laughs> I'm just having visions of Harrison Ford playing the ghost in the next one is fedora head or something yeah. <laughs> okay yeah maybe not totally a surprise we covered indiana jones being over the hill but yeah what a huge coup for this movie in the dead of summer with so many big event films that what still feels like a very small smaller than the conjuring universe little horror story can have such a big impact well let's see what the impact was about Stuart. you've got the plot well, it's been nine years since Insidious Chapter 2, and that climactic hypnosis session actually worked. Young Dalton Lambert, played by grown-up Ty Simpkins, has not once traveled in his dreams to the spectral dimension known as the Further. Nor does he recall his father, possessed by Veilhead and played by Patrick Wilson, attacking him or his siblings with a hammer or baseball bat. In fact, Dalton doesn't remember being 10 years old at all and blames the memory gap on viral meningitis. But all of that changes after Josh drops Dalton off 
at college, and the budding painter enrolls in a demanding art class where he's pushed to create self-exploring canvases in a trance, I think. Well, we'll talk about it. But before too long, Dalton has drawn the red door, that ominous passageway to the further, as well as a figure guarding that entrance with a hammer who looks more and more like dear old dad the more that Dalton works on it. Quirky math major and accidental roommate Chris Wilson claims not to be bothered by Dalton's goth attitude until the black female finally is reassigned to a different dorm room and Dalton follows her there like an invisible creeper using his out-of-body astral projection powers. And they become friends, decide to attend a kegger together, where Dalton gets vomited on by the ghost of a fraternity pledge who died being hazed, and Chris gets strangled by that lipstick face demon we haven't seen for the last couple movies. In fact, lipstick face eventually chains Dalton up in the further, plays Tiny Tim records for him again, while other demons take possession of his body and threaten Chris at the dorm. Meanwhile, Father Josh Lambert is finally ready to get answers for why his marriage collapsed and the last nine years have been so foggy. Doctors can find nothing physically wrong with his brain that would explain why he keeps experiencing attacks from a long-haired phantom. But using a box of old family photos, Josh eventually is able to identify this ghost as Ben Burton, his biological father that he never met and who killed himself back in 1978 jumping off the roof of a mental hospital. Josh eventually goes to ex-wife Renee, again briefly played by Rose Byrne, and recovers his memory in time to astrally project into the further and rescue Dalton. He thinks he's going to be stuck holding back the lipstick-faced demon clawing at the red door forever, but Dalton returns to his body and seals that portal by painting over it with a heroic portrait of his father holding a lantern. There seems to be no indication that father or son will have any more demonic impairment to their relationship or that Patrick Wilson will be asked to direct another movie as credits roll. <laughs> oh, but will he be asked to sing in another movie? Again, we'll save that for the end. Ah, he comes from musical theater. I just want to point out the fact that Patrick Wilson was in the musical version of Fan of the Opera, and I knew people that were working on Broadway that knew him back in the 90s when I think he was in Damn Yankees. So it's not out of character. It is to us. We think of him as what? What do you always call him? Fake Will Arnett? Yeah, fake Will Arnett. Yeah, but we're reminded who he is here at the beginning of the movie. Like I said, a lot of this movie feels like repurposed footage from chapter two, starting helpfully, probably, because it's been 10 years, with how it all ended up. The father and son being hypnotized. You know, one thing that I really like about this movie is that Patrick Wilson took the time to go and find all the dailies from part two and find angles that were filmed from part two and never used and shots in part two. Because later on, we're going to see some more flashbacks to part two. And I'm like, I just watched part two. I don't remember that shot. Did they bring in new kids to play the kids and intermixed footage of Ty Simpkins as a kid? And no, this is all archival footage. Ty Simpkins. Simpkins is Dalton in flashback and in modern time. Mm. And I think that's pretty cool. And yes, starting here with the hypnosis, I almost would say it's helpful if this is all you know. If you were hypnotized to forget Insidious 1 and 2, you might have more patience for Insidious 5 than I do, where I'll just ask the question, is it fun to watch a movie where your two characters know nothing and you know everything? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, that is the interesting dynamic. And it is one that carries out throughout the entire movie. I agree with you. It's not surprising that they would start here. This is where we left them. But we all know this programming is going to unravel and they'll eventually realize they can astrally project and are being harassed by demons. But did you think it was going to take 90 of the 100 minutes to do that? That's the shocker. Yeah, it was really slow going to get to the point of this one. Mm. It took a while to get off the ground, I think. Just going to go ahead and say, actors like drama. And I feel like you hire an actor, anytime you hire an actor, anytime you hear an actor you like is going to direct a movie, chances are it's some stage play with three people in it and they're staring at each other, sitting around a room. That's what actors love. They don't want to film ghosts. They don't want to film chase scenes. They want to get to like actors screaming at each other and why didn't you love me kind of stuff. And this movie is <laughs> built around why father and son haven't been getting along for the last nine years. Yes, exactly. Why didn't you love me is right after the flashback where we jump. We jump to the funeral for Grandma Lorraine, Barbara Hershey, not coming back for this one. I guess, well, she could always be a ghost. People can always come back. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yes. And helpfully, there's lots of photos of her around here at the casket. And because Dalton is an illustrator, we'll see him drawing her picture. In case you didn't remember who this character was. Yeah, they have the likeness of Barbara Hershey to remind you of her bigger role in chapter two. But they're going to right here at the funeral, A, give Dalton the spotlight. He's the one reading the biblical passage, you know, a time to love, a time to hate. Badly. Droning, like, I guess if I have to. I mean, I'm with Dan when he calls him just like an insufferable little shit. I'm like, yeah, this guy is awful. I think every teenager is like that when reading the Bible for anything. If you were asked to do it for a wedding, for a funeral, you're a teenager, you don't want to do it. Ty Simpkins is acting the character, not acting the Bible. Let's talk about that a little because Ty Simpkins, when you go back and watch those movies, you realize he spends most of it in a coma. He really doesn't get to act. We didn't really see his personality. Unlike Carol Ann and poltergeist for example there was a lot of her being cute i don't feel like there was a lot of cute ty simpkins and in insidious this is actually kind of his introduction as a personality and because i guess he is so angry at his dad and maybe just a goth artist who is over it over this family yeah he is just extremely closed down sullen unlikable it makes it hard for the audience to like him as well yeah he was not very likable and, you know, going into it, I kind of figured it would be more of the family together. I was a little surprised to find out in this first scene that they were divorced because that kind of made me think that I didn't know what was coming since they were divorced. It kind of left it open. But yeah, Dalton's not likable in the entire thing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's a real shocker and a challenge, I would say, getting into this is that he's the main focus and he's not nice to his roommate. He's not nice to his dad. If he's not possessed, he's just self-absorbed. And so it's just a really closed down performance. And I can't think of too many horror movies where the lead character is so inaccessible. He's the top build actor and again I'm sure that was one of the things that led him back to this role is the fact that he was being offered top billing for the first time in his career but is he the lead or is it really Patrick Wilson because when the car drives away Dalton is in the car driving away and we stay with Patrick Wilson I agree with you Dalton is only an accessible character through the viewpoint of Patrick Wilson we want Dalton to open up because Patrick Wilson who plays 
plays Josh, the dad. Josh wants Dalton to open up and become more emotive. And so it's through the point of view of the father that we have any empathy for this kid at all. And that was kind of nice. I will say, just as this starts, Patrick Wilson, director, likes to have a lot of uh, disorienting shots. Like, we start upside down looking at a headstone. I'm like, who's dead? It takes me a minute to realize it's Barbara Hershey. It takes me another minute to realize, oh, wait, this is not a family together. They're here together at the gravesite. But yeah, watching Rose Byrne take the kids and get into that SUV and go away from her ex-husband was kind of a nice, like, oh, so all things haven't been rosy since you ran around and chased her with a baseball bat. There were consequences for chapter two and getting hypnotized to forget didn't change or maybe even worsened the relationship. And here we get a cameo from Carl, who was in the opening scene hypnotizing him. I thought this was going to be the reintroduction of Carl, that Carl would be the Elise of this film. I don't know why Carl is here at all. We don't like Carl. Carl is fake Elise. When they killed Elise... (laughs) At the end of chapter one, they realized they needed someone like her to carry the next film. And so her old lover friend or whatever he is was just, it was a bad role. And, you know, he tried to get through it. But I didn't even remember if this guy lived or died and did not care. This is not any kind of nostalgia note to say, oh, look, Carl is here. Don't care. Hate him. After seeing Carl in the cemetery, I thought he would actually have a much bigger role than just at the cemetery. But you wouldn't want it, right? I mean, nobody (laughs) wants more Carl. No, but it was a big red herring. Not even a red herring. I don't know what it was, but... How about an opening kill? How about we have death in this movie and Carl, like, gets it right here. He's like, oh, I just wanted to pay tribute and then, like, demon jumps out and rips his face off. I needed that. Well... That's not going to happen because this is like horror with training wheels. Yeah. Is it horror or is it melodrama? Melodrama with a touch of horror, I guess. Yes. Yeah. It's elevated to the point, and I use that word elevated not to say that it's superior, but just that it has raised what is normally the expectation of jump scares and gore to a level of like, nope, this is mostly kind of what I said, drama. Families accusing each other of not being present. That's what its concern is. But I will compliment Patrick Wilson for some directing decisions of keeping things kind of creepy. Like right after Carl leaves, there's this long shot of Josh in the car texting his son and the text bubbles coming up on screen. And I thought I was so clever for noticing it, but I think everybody noticed it on my second audience because everybody was whispering. But out of focus in the background is some person, some being, some shape that is walking closer and closer to the car. And then Josh leans over, obscures it. And when he leans back out, the apparition is gone. And so much like in the photos where we saw Veilhead get closer and closer to Josh when he was a boy back in part two, we got to see all those photos. Here, something is getting closer to Josh again. And I like that it keeps an ominous feeling throughout this drama. Is it enough to sustain as much drama as we have? Maybe not, but it's a nice touch that I want to call out. Agreed. It reminds me of something like It Follows, where you're right. It is peripheral vision, background. The horror doesn't leap out at you in your face. It's like creeping slowly in from the side and only the observant are going to notice that. I think that's always a nice, it respects the audience. They believe you're smart enough to see what's going on. But the trick is, yeah, I'm thinking Veilhead is coming back for him at last. The identity of this Phantom will be something else. However, let me point out something about the cinema. What I'm surprised at 
is that the Phantom shows up, if we're going to call him the Phantom, him or her, and then we don't see the Phantom until we're three quarters of the way into the movie. We don't see them again until then. Well, there are shots of like looking out windows and them being across the street. Kind of Michael Myers in the first Halloween kind of stuff. But that's three quarters of the way in. Yeah, a little bit ways of the way in. I mean, it'll be a really long time, but before we'll realize, I'll spoil it, this is his father. That's like super long. Yeah. 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 But it just seemed like to be really spooky and need to be more than just once in the background. And then it has its big scene three quarters of the way through the movie. Well, the reason for that long gap is I did, again, try to do my research on this film. And Patrick Wilson said that when they were assembling this film, what they decided is it needed more Josh. And so these are insert shots. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. So they went back and filmed this stuff with, the texting and things to insert later on. You know who should have directed this movie? Kaylee. Baby Kaylee should have directed this <laughs> so we finally know who the hell she is or why if the family even loves her because you wouldn't know from this cut. But this is where we get the credit sequence. You know, they always got to have those big letters insidious with like every like atonal noise, bang a pot like really loud, tear off the strings of a violin kind of sound. But they toned it down. A little bit. But we have this credit sequence where we see the evolution. It starts as crayon drawings. We think of Dalton being a 10-year-old or, you know, illustrating his astral projections, but they morph into very studied, sophisticated adult sketches of all the players. And we believe that he actually does have artistic talent. He might actually make something of himself going to art school when we pick up again on this road trip. I liked some of the continuity there in that the crayon drawings were the exact ones we saw back in Insidious 1, so it let you know it was Dalton's art. As for the road trip to college, here was another shot that kind of got me. When they get to the college, you see a close-up of a building, and I'm like, it's a mausoleum? Are they back at the graveyard? No, it's actually like the archway that enters the school, but the way that they framed that shot initially, I swear it looked like a grave. Yeah. I kind of wanted a little bit more of this. I think you're right. I like Dalton more. I am more permissive of his anger when I see Josh and that Josh is trying so badly to connect, you know, playing Ario Speedwagon and, you know, complimenting the drawings while seething that he's not going to be hung on the kid's wall and trying to get him to go to a frat party thrown by his old fraternity, like all of that stuff. Yeah, he really doesn't know his son. You understand why Dalton is mad that, like, you don't know anything about me if you think that this is going to work. I love his line. Go to the party. If you hate it, no worries. But you're not going to hate it. (laughs) I like that line. (laughs) It's coming from the father to the son. It reminded me of my father taking me to every soccer game in my life. And guess what? I hated it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. What dads want aren't always what young kids want. And we will hear in dialogue and have lots of lingering moments later to underline the fact that this is the most time he spent with Dalton for quite some time. That's in those nine years, he drifted away. And again, not only did the marriage collapse, but he barely has a relationship with any of his children and Dalton hates him for it. Because he was foggy. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's how it's described. Yes. That's a technical term for apparently being a jerky dad. Right. Well, absenteeism. And, you know, this is a universal. If all dads could have the excuse, I was possessed and then got hypnotized. I mean, <laughs> lots of times they just have other priorities and they realize too late, cats in the cradle, that, oh, I didn't make time for something that should have been really important to me. And this moment, you know, it's a little bit overdone. It's a little on the nose, but it helps understand the conflict and what's going to get resolved by this movie. Father and son need to repair what got lost. And they part on some pretty hurtful words. Yeah, but that's a tense time. If you guys remember, the first moving into college is kind of tense. I think I screamed at my parents and told them to get the fuck out. Yeah, I was kind of blithe and was just like, okay, bye. And like turned around and didn't wave at them. I think I wanted to send the signal. I didn't need them. And I think that's an understandable position when you're trying to strike out on your own. But again, it's more than that for Dalton. I think you see his guilt after dad leaves. He kind of wishes that he had been nicer, but he's got other things to distract him. Like the fact that they put a girl in his dorm room and we have the comic relief of this movie blowing in. Chris. I can't believe they're still doing this whole name mix-up because you have an androgynous name and so you're put in the wrong gender's dorm room and that the school is so blithe that in this day and age of assaults and things that you'd be like, well, you may be a female, but you're just going to have to stay in that room with this strange dude tonight because we can't get you a new room until tomorrow. You say that, but I mean, as Chris herself says, this is a liberal art school. This just sounds like a very liberal decision at a time when, let's face it, people with gender identity, that's exploding in ways that are confusing for lots of folks. And so I lived on a co-ed floor in college. It wasn't co-ed rooms, but my neighbors were female. I don't think it's that big of a deal because she just moved right upstairs as a co-ed dorm and it's not that big of a deal. How would you feel if you were forced to sleep in a room with a co-worker who you just met and they send you on a business trip and you're staying in the same hotel room together overnight? How would you feel? I had to do that once when I went to that New York trade show for work. I want to quit and go to a place that could give me my own room, frankly. (laughs) I had to share a room with someone I didn't know. I literally met her when she walked into the room. But it was a her. What if it was a him? Yeah, it was a her. Yeah, no, there is real legal jeopardy if assault or anything were to transpire there. I hear your point. It's a really bad mistake, and you'd think they'd be on it, you know, like right away, we will get you to a new room. But I think this goes on for at least one night and maybe a couple, giving these two a chance to bond, become friends. I think the only relationship in college that Dalton makes. Yeah, it's almost like she is one of the only two students on campus. Yes, there are going to be some extras at the kegger you mentioned, but really, this is the only student who's going to matter and then we're going to have one who's slightly antagonistic who's going to show up for a couple of scenes and it really feels like a very small college if this is dalton's movie you'd think there'd be more people dalton is encountering in college yeah you'd give a lot of storylines to a lot of different characters and create again for the youth audience characters and storylines that are going to connect with them but he's quickly established as the weirdo when chris comes in she's a weirdo can i just say if you want to have relatable young people You don't pull out a hooter. Even people born in the 80s, I'm willing to bet, don't remember the Hooters. All You Zombies and We Danced, it was a minor, minor band. But their gimmick was, we have a keyboard that's also a flute. (laughs) I remember the band. I don't remember the instrument. Oh, yeah. That was their whole thing, was that it's like an accordion.
accordion. It sounds like one anyway, but it was a hooter. They made this instrument. Aren't they cool? And they were cool for two songs and then we were done. I didn't know about the keyboard and the flute thing. It leads to a nice double entendre though. I think I'm going to start, you know, keeping one of those around so that anytime I want to ask someone, would you like to blow my hooter? And then see, I just made a keyboard. Ha ha ha. (laughs) I think you're right. This feels like a middle-aged person grown up on the 80s trying to make double entendre and not doing well. This screenwriter, it should be said, has got teams who had a lot of critical success writing a drama show called Rectify. It was cable. I never watched it, but it was a man reintegrating to life after prison and was probably pretty stark and brutal and has since then written horror movies that nobody seems to give the same weight to. Halloween Kills, I liked it. Firestarter 2022, mm, less fans. Any fans? <laughs> I gave it a pass. I gave it a shrug if you want to know the truth. But yeah, I feel like he is trying to create this sort of downbeat, low energy movie where, again, a lot of it's about depression. When we cut back and forth between Josh and Dalton, Dalton's got the more interesting story. I feel like we'd probably want to spend more time talking about him. But both of them seem to be having bad lives, right? Like nobody's having fun. But it also seems that Dalton might be socially awkward too, perhaps as a result of being hypnotized because he can't really relate to conversations with Chris and maybe because she's outgoing and overbearing, but it could be that he would be the lone weird guy at school too. Yes, I guess that's the question to ask. Did the hypnosis make him as foggy as dad? Did he have no friends in the last nine years in junior high, high school, any of that? He believes that he went through a coma. He can't remember age 10. What he'll explain is that he had viral meningitis and was in a coma and that has led to this large memory lapse but I think it's a personality lapse I don't think that he ever developed social skills he feels kind of like his character from Jurassic World just someone that is more obsessed with interiors like himself like he'll spend all his time at the easel and never pay attention to anyone around him he has a phone but the only person I see him texting is his mom yeah I wrote this off to being a art student. I knew some art students in college and some of them were kind of introverted or had strange personality quirks is how I could put it. I mean, I considered them friends slash acquaintances, but they were a little standoffish and things. And so I take it as he's very internal. And does he have the fog of his dad? He doesn't seem to like relate to his dad when his dad's like, I've been foggy. He's not like, oh, me too. This is something we can connect on. So yeah, yeah. Agreed. It's He's experienced it differently. And again, he's holding on to his resentment. The only person he seems to truly like, he tolerates Chris, you know, and she tolerates him in his nightlight. But the only person I see him actually like spark in his eyes, smile. Oh, goody. I get to hang out with my professor, this cruel person who's going to have <laughs> you bring out your best work and then destroy it so that you can reinvent yourself to her liking. Oh, my God. This is such a parody of art school as someone that actually did attend film school. I've got to say, this is like what we fear the teachers are going to be like, but they really, this is quite an exaggeration. Yeah, I've taken a few art classes in my time in school and out of school and not how art classes are. But apparently this person is like the art teacher because even on the car ride up, his dad asked him, your mom said you got that teacher that you want. So he had to be in this woman's class. I thought they were going to have an affair, right? Like that to me when like he's having a physical relationship with Professor Armageddon, but that's not it. I don't know. For whatever reason, he's buying her bullshit. You know, she says any fool can learn technique. I'm here 
here to pull the you out of you. I'm like, no, art school is actually about learning the technique and then on your own, you develop your own personality. But the idea that she's going to rip out their insides and have them throw it up like trance-like. I mean, she seems to like count backwards and put them in a hypnotic state in order for them to work on the easel. It's almost like he joined a cult. Yes. The fact that she counts back from 10, and I've always had a problem with how easily this movie hypnotizes people. It takes almost nothing to mm. hypnotize someone in this movie. And she's just like, reach inside yourself from a memory. And I'm counting back from 10. And that's all it takes to undo that hypnosis from years ago. A mm. skilled hypnotist is undone in 10 seconds by an art teacher. Yeah, it's shorthand, but you get the point. The idea that creatively speaking, when you are trying to, you know, and I get that. Like when you're trying to creatively express who you are and you're digging into your background, your pain, usually, it's not surprising that trauma and bad stuff comes forward. I think that part is true about art school. I sat through a lot of movies about sexual assault and just trauma because people had to process what they had gone through. And his trauma is the red door. This is where we get the title explained to us. In case you had forgotten, the portal to the further is this door that seems to float in a void, but has a satanic red hue that comes from his own blood. That some claw comes actually out of the stenciling and slashes his palm. And that's his blood now on the canvas. May not be proud of this, but this movie made me jump with that. When that hand comes out of the canvas, because it's been serene... We've been watching Dalton draw this chalk, a lot of extreme close-ups of, I guess it's charcoal he's rubbing across the paper, and we're just watching him, and I'm like, okay, he's drawing the door, he's drawing the door, and then out of nowhere comes this hand and slams his hand down with a big noise sting, and I'm like, okay, it got a jump out of me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, frankly, this movie needed more of that. Insidious has never been much more than a bunch of jump scares strung together, and so it's kind of weird that it's taking this lackadaisical pace. I'm not minding it. I'm noticing it. It definitely feels like Patrick Wilson's instincts aren't James Wan's instincts. But yes, now that we've gotten to it and now we have this red door, I'm expecting with much more frequency to experience the paranormal than we do. This is where I started checking my watch, too, because I felt like we'd gone a really long time without anything weird happening other than like that phantom at the cemetery. Like there's just this big, long stretch with not much at all. The bone they throw is this frat party that Chris will talk Dalton into going into his father's frat party idea. And they have a largely underexplained ghost vomiting on Dalton. Yeah, that didn't really make any sense and didn't have any payoff, right? Only in the sense that if you read between the lines, they meet a very douchey guy. They go to this frat party whose theme is baby. And so everyone's in a diaper and, you know, has pacifiers and is eating chocolate pudding out of a diaper. And I guess that's a frat thing to do, being gross. You know, that feels like a young person's game. But Nick the Dick, as he'll be lovingly coined, mentions the fact that there have been incidents at this frat. They feel under attack. And so this must be the person that got hazed and died. 
I thought he was called Nick the Dick because he was a real asshole, and he is an asshole, but later we see he uses Magnum condoms, so I'm thinking he's Nick the Dick because he's swinging some pipe. Yeah, I agree. I, for him, the name means something different than it does to Chris, who, again, can't stand the guy, decides to break into his room and steal his beauty products and smear them around. You know, stuff that I expect college kids to do to each other. And while that's going on, we get, allegedly, a creepy scene of Dalton hearing someone getting sick in the bathroom and then cowering under the bed as something with vomit on its shoes comes for him. Okay, so... This is also where I started to question because is Dalton like narcoleptic and just falling asleep everywhere? Yeah, I mean, that's how the further has always worked. I mean, even in chapter two, like your dad's busting through the basement door and going to kill you, but you're going to take a little nappy nap. Yeah, I mean, did he like pass out? Like, oh my God, I got to go to sleep and passes out in this guy's bedroom. (laughs) It feels like he can do that. Yeah. And we'll see it's mostly done with lighting that things go blue and suddenly we realize we're in the further. Yeah. And at this point in my head, I'm like, okay, this is the first two of the Lambert family. We had Poltergeist and then we had The Shining for the second one that it kind of ripped off. And then for the third one, I'm like, okay, this is Nightmare on Elm Street with cats on the cradle. Mm. If only it were, though. I hear what you're saying. If we had a director who was thinking in terms of horror movie types, what horror movie do I want to emulate? Then I would agree with that assessment. Unfortunately, I'm thinking Patrick Wilson would much rather be doing Chekhov or something dramatic. (laughs) And so, again, these horror moments feel barely stenciled in, largely unexplained. Maybe you think that's cool. Maybe it makes you work a little bit harder. But in the end, it makes it feel less of a horror movie in general. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out the rules of astral projection here. I felt like they were pretty clearly established in the first films. And now, maybe because of the hypnosis, the astral projection's on the fritz. And again, they're able to fall asleep very easily when they want to. Later on, he's going to sneak back in this frat house and be able to fall asleep and astral project in seconds. It's all very weird. But, like, I didn't remember from previous films that if you were astrally projecting and walked through a door, that that door actually moved. But we're going to see Dalton go back to his room and fall asleep. And as you mentioned in your plot summary, Stuart, he's going to go into Chris's room now that Chris has her own dorm room with another female. And he's going to play the hooter in the further. And that's actually going to play the notes. And because he played the song his mother wrote, Chris is going to know it was Dalton playing the hooter as compared to just anybody else. That's a crazy accusation. I just saw my musical instrument fly around my room and I know it was you because it was playing your mom's song? Uh, okay. But to more to your point, I heard in the first movie, in fact, the other children, well, the baby didn't say anything, but the younger brother would see his brother sleepwalking. So I do think that when Dalton has been in the further in the past, other people see him just walking around in a trance. This is a new development that suddenly he can be ghost Dalton. But yeah, the fact that Chris knew it was him and accused him of being a creep, well, You didn't see him in your room or anything. This is a very strange instant attack. That's creep. If your ex-roommate is coming into your room and rustling through your things. Yeah. Here's the thing. A different character would be like, we're at college. You're invisible. Let's play pranks, right? Like this sounds like an MTV show all of a sudden. Like where is the fun of being young in this movie? This movie feels very old for being set in a college liberal arts campus with 19 year olds. For some reason, I thought there was a Scott 
Bayo movie where he played like a ghost or something and could undress people. Zapped? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, it should be zapped. And again, if we had a director that wasn't so pretentious and turning the focus back to him. We're talking about Dalton, but mixed into all of this, we're going back to Josh. We see that Josh is taken Dalton's words to heart, that he should know medically what's wrong with him, that he should do that deep dive that Dalton is doing and exploring himself. So he's going to go to the doctor. And we have, I think, probably by gauging my audience, the most successful scare moment in an MRI machine. Oh, MRIs are scary enough just as it is. If you've ever been in one, those machines and the sounds they make are awful. So this is ripe fodder for a horror film. The big scare from the scene was in the trailer, unfortunately. So what could have been a great shock became way too telegraphed, but it's still a good scene. I still like Mm -hmm. to see Josh in the MRI machine. And, you know, if you ever get an MRI, they do give you those headphones. They pipe music in so that you don't get to hear all the sounds. But here you get to hear all the sounds of the MRI machine. Kind of took me back to The Exorcist with the using of the sound effects of the medical equipment to unnerve the audience. Yeah, Reagan has a whole lab test sequence, montage, where they're trying to find what's wrong with her brain, and we see x-rays and all that. I was definitely thinking, yeah, that's the horror, when they're getting to horror of what they're doing. But yeah, I like this moment of of being in an MRI machine, feeling vulnerable, the power going off, you believing the ghost coming towards his head, and then it actually coming up from his feet. Of course, blown by the fact that, as Marjorie's pointed out, Nightmare on Elm Street, it was just a dream. You were asleep, and now you're not. Yeah, it seems like way too much sleeping in this one and fighting stuff in your sleep. But this is a jump scare that did get me because I had not seen the trailer. So it did kind of give me a little bit of a start. I also recognize it was a great use of something people fear on many levels. You know, medical stuff, the MRI. I've never had an MRI, but I'm terrified that I would ever have to get one because... It looks scary and I know it sounds scary. So you're adding like all these levels of anxiety into this jump scare. So they did a really good job on it, especially making people feel off kilter when you saw this. But who was the demon who attacks Josh? I just put in my notes it was a deadite from Evil Dead, but I'm trying to figure out that wasn't his father attacking him, right? That was just random demon? Yeah, that's what I thought. It was almost why I went to see the movie twice was I couldn't determine. But I think really replaying even the old movie in my head, like Dalton wasn't attacked by any one specific demon. Yeah, there's lipstick face, but there's there's just a bunch of people that get you. When you astrally project into the further, all of a sudden you're just a target for lots of randoms. Like ghosts just pop out and w- will follow you around from that point forward. And I think a lot of these jump scares are done by anonymous ghosts. But there is the father storyline. It's kind of like a wannabe James Wan game. You know, James Wan loves to have the clapping game or people doing something with cans on a string or something that'll lead to some kind of, you know, jump scare surprise. We have... Josh trying to play a memory game, you know, where you lift up a flashcard and try to remember where the identical card is in a lineup. He's taped them all up on his window. There must be easier ways to play a memory game (laughs) than to have a full pane glass window that you keep putting masking tape up on and flipping them over. Wouldn't it just be easier to have the photos turned over on a table or something? Or play it with a deck of cards? Yes, that's 
how you would do it, but this is how you know where it's coming from. Obviously, something's going to smash through the window. We do see sometimes he lifts it up and there's that out of focus figure that was stalking his car. And then the third time he's playing the game, one, two, three, wouldn't you know it, daddy is breaking through that window, chasing him upstairs, throwing him in a closet, and then what, just leaving? Because these ghosts don't really want to hurt him. They just want to give him a box of photos. Well, two things. First of all, jumping through the window was another time I actually jumped because we'd seen the father out of focus before. I didn't expect him to smash through the window. And then he knocks Josh into the further. He gets the blue light on him. And so he goes into the further briefly. And then when he comes back out of the further, his father is gone. But he's brought back with him a box of family photos that I believe were actually in that closet. But because he was in the further, the dad could put them in his hand. Maybe. I thought they fell off the shelf. Like when he was knocked into the closet, the photos fell off the shelf and they were just there. I don't know that they came from the further, but I don't know. This movie's a little bit confusing and vague. I thought that it was very systematic that his father was doing that so that the photos would end up in his hand because there's no other reason for that visit. Yeah, that's my thinking is that what we will learn about Ben, if Ben's stalking his son, it's kind of like Josh stalking Dalton. They want a relationship. I know I wasn't there for you. I know that I jumped off a roof in 1978 and wasn't a good father to you and you grew up with a single mother. What a bad mental hospital to allow patients access to the roof. (laughs) Accidents happen, but also 1978, right? Like, there's a reason why we don't have those kinds of hospitals anymore. Badly run. Geraldo. Watch the old Geraldo video from the 80s, and he did a whole expose on mental hospitals of the time. But yes, that this guy wants to reestablish a relationship with Josh is his mission. He had to have wanted him to find those photos, find out who I am, understand that the fogginess you're experiencing was in 1978 the thing that got me thrown into the nut house and forced me to kill myself. It's supposed to be tender, but because this movie is not really, it wants to play the game first of all of we're not to know that for a long time and be scared by this phantom. And then the focus is much more on Dalton than it is on Ben. We just, we don't really care. We've never met Ben before. This is the first time we've ever learned about Josh's father. Yeah, this is where it gets really muddy and there's too much going on with Josh that we shouldn't care about. Yeah. Yeah. But we get more sound effect scariness, right? He goes to a microfiche machine and we get that foley work going on. It's supposed to unnerve us, I think. But did you notice the shot of the camera as that was happening? Each time it advanced and made the sound, the camera jumped closer and closer to him. Yep. It was really well use of that, I thought. As if someone was going to pop up from behind. Mm -hmm. Like were the killer's POV approaching this guy down in this microfish library. Do they still have those? I imagine if they do, it's exactly as this movie depicts, way in some sub-basement where nobody goes. But yeah, I mean, I think you said that they were originally going to just focus all on Dalton. That seems to be wise, right? These Josh scenes, they're atmospheric. Maybe you like the MRI jump scare, but in the end, they don't give us a whole lot of information and we never really care about Ben the ghost. So all of that's kind of a waste of time, filler, and elongating this movie in ways that are not to its benefit. I suppose, I mean, it's painting the history of the Lambert men. The eldest son gets the gift. There was one more jump scare. There were three in this movie for me. And the third was Dalton at college when he's 
in his room and they're trying to clean some blood off a sheet and then the sheet jumps up at him all of a sudden and covers him that was my third jump scare so Dalton at college got two and Josh got one I got a little bit more excited once Chris who is sort of the active character she's the one that made Dalton go to the frat party she's going to be the one to listen to him as he talks about how he came into her room and put words to the idea you're astral projecting I just googled it and we have some cameos from beloved characters we haven't seen so far Specs and Tucker are now YouTube ghost hunters I'm so glad she said that that looked like they filmed it while they were on break from their jobs at Best Buy because I said they looked like Geek Squad way back in like part <laughs> one <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The joke stands. And again, no real point to this other than it helps these characters know things we already do. And we get the jollies of seeing comedic relief characters that just don't factor into the storyline anymore. And Elise, too. She apparently used to do college lectures. And we have a YouTube version of her explaining what going into the further has been for her. So again, I ask, I bring up this question, and I mean it seriously, is can there be fun in watching the characters learn what we already know. I mean, there is that type of irony. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where the whole point is you know what the characters don't, and so you know what's lurking around the corner. By the same token, I'm incredibly frustrated it's taking them so long to learn what I know, and that they're going through all these machinations, and I'm not learning anything new as a result of it. And I call this largely a fault of directing. This is the director's job to keep the pace going. Yeah, maybe this is the script, but if you recognize that everyone knows this, you do it fast. This movie lingered. No, it doesn't linger. It it actually, like, uh, gets comatose. Like, it slows to the point... by a directorial choice that we are just dragging this on, stretching it out, trying to get mood, atmosphere. This is what Patrick Wilson is chasing after, but I feel like it's the wrong tone for this movie. I want to get to the red door. You call this movie the red door, let's get into the further. And the fact that we're an hour into this movie and they're just learning about what that is and how they might get there, extremely frustrating. Yeah, this is another point where I was checking my watch because I'm like, what is going on? This is like taking way too long to get to the point. And I feel like we should have been further along in this than we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me put a fine point on this. Everything they're doing is fine, but you want this to be the first half hour. That it's the first hour mm-hmm. it shows that, again, director doesn't know what they're doing. It's like he was trying to make it like this psychological thriller or something that makes you think. And it's like he was making a completely different movie than what we expected or wanted. Yeah, it's elevated. That elevated horror. Insidious was not that. It was a jump scare bonanza. And now he's trying to say, you've come for the family drama. You've come for this psychic pain that these characters are experiencing. And I want to remind him, you might think that that might be how you got internalized into your character, but the audience is here for lipstick face. And it took, what, an hour and 10 minutes before he's choking Chris at the frat house. And this bothers me because Dalton wants to go back and see the puking kid again, which is the last thing I want because I was literally made a little nauseated by all of the Foley work on the vomiting sounds. That was a little too real and a little too gross. It was pretty good. Yeah. 
And so in order to astrally project into the frat house, they have to physically break into the frat house. Later on, Josh is going to fall asleep in a different city and get to the college campus in the further. So I don't understand why they have to break into the frat house. I mean, he wasn't in Chris's room to astrally project into Chris's room. So why couldn't he fall asleep in his dorm room and go to the frat house? But it adds a little bit more tension, I suppose, that they have to hide from Nick the Dick, who is hitting on Paige, one of the girls at the college, only his bowels are going to take precedence and scare Paige off. But you have to have a real world danger to move this along. And that allowed, and they probably could have done this better, that allowed Chris, who was not asleep and not projecting, to be in peril because of Dalton astral projecting and bringing lipstick face to real earth or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, I want to know. I don't know. This is where the movie gets extremely muddy for me. Rules. How does Lipstick Face, because Dalton goes into the further, how does he wind up choking a real girl in the real dorm room when he's in the corner, you know, astral projecting? Why wouldn't it play more? They're going to do this later that Lipstick Face possesses Dalton and Dalton is attacking her. That would make sense. But having Lipstick Face attacker doesn't make sense. I sort of agree. By the same token, if you take the Insidious Saga as a whole, we saw this with the man who can't breathe in part three, where he was throwing around that girl in the room. So we've seen ghosts attack people before, even when they weren't possessing someone or in the further. But but they were people that were dabbling in the further. Yeah, that's true. Here, I agree. I thought it should have been Lipstick Face possessing Dalton and Dalton strangling Chris, which would give more credence to Chris's anger at Dalton. Chris is the one pushing for all of this, but after she gets choked there, all of a sudden she's attacking Dalton like this is all his fault. Yeah, not only that, but she had an interesting little ripple. Early on, she's babbling weird quirks about herself, like she orders food on Sundays in a British accent, but she mentions that both her parents are dead. Okay, let's use that. You find that your roommate can actually go into a netherworld of ghosts? Don't you want to go meet your parents? I feel like she would have had a storyline if we didn't have all that bullshit with Josh she would have had a storyline where she would want to go in and meet her dead parents I thought that was going to come up later that never did. Like, there would be something where Lipstick Demon would trick her or something. Mm -hmm. It's got to be, right? It's the forgotten movie. It's the movie that got left behind so that we could get more shots of Josh looking sad at home. (laughs) But we do get to the climax here shortly after this attack in the dorm room. Dalton has kept painting and realized the person he's painting attacking him is his father, which leads us to a token scene with son Foster. Remember Foster, the other child? He's hanging out at home and he's just waiting for somebody to call him, please. He has nothing to do. (laughs) I guarantee if you hadn't rewatched any of the movies before, you would have forgotten there were any other children but Dalton. That's correct. It was like, what? Who? Yeah, I mean, and this kid hasn't worked since Insidious Chapter 2. He's not going to. Sorry to be cruel, but he's just, yeah, not a dynamic actor. And it's just here so that we can have it confirmed that, yes, other children were also attacked by dad. And they've, though not hypnotized, have been convinced by their mother that they, what, dreamed it all up? What gaslighting is this shit? Yeah, (laughs) Come on, Mom. Let's get to Rose Byrne. She's barely in this movie, but I do like her as an actress. And I wish she were featured better than she's going to be here as basically given the task of saying, yes, honey, you were hypnotized, but you wanted it. 
Yeah, she was wasted. She's a lot better than this, but apparently she's not better than just hanging out with Seth Rogen and doing projects with him. So maybe she isn't better than this. I mean, you know, acting's a tough gig, right? You, you take things that aren't good, but she should have demanded. She knows the director, right? Like she could have gotten a better part. She obviously just didn't. She did this as a favor. She didn't want to be here. It feels that way. Keep in mind that when Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne were approached, they were asked to just do a couple of scenes to bring this family back together. And then keep in mind, Patrick Wilson wanted to make a film about a father and a son. That doesn't leave a whole lot of space for Rose Byrne, no matter what type of role she had time for in her schedule. Yeah. And I think they said Callie's like off visiting a friend or something. Maybe she's been abducted. Other movie. We don't care. (laughs) We're not Liam Neeson. We're not chasing after her. It's not that kind of film. And what kind of film is it? I get really confused here. It was the reason I most wanted to go back and see it a second time. Why is Dalton all of a sudden possessed or chained up or whatever? It doesn't make any sense. You guys saw this twice. So can we walk through this? Chris is telling him, don't do this anymore. This is dangerous. But he keeps painting. And I think we're to understand that the process of painting is introspective and that he's further tripping as he does it. And now that he knows that his father is this figure he's painted with a hammer, he's trapped in that nightmare. Like this is some kind of psychodrama of like the trauma of that has got me chained up now. I can't move past the idea of my father wanted to kill me. But Lipstick Demon was always interested in him though. Yeah, you're close to what I believe here, Stuart. The painting took him into the further because he's painting the hammer and then he just reaches out onto the painting again, like Marjorie called out, very nice on Elm Street and pulls the hammer out of the painting. The hammer is now in his hand and he is now in the further. That was kind of a cool image. And much like Veilhead always wanted Josh, Lipstick Face Demon had his sights always set on Dalton. That's what we saw in the first two movies. Mm -hmm. Lipstick Face wanted to possess Dalton above all the others. Everyone was trying to possess Dalton, but Lipstick Face was the most powerful and was getting the closest. And so what I took it as is Lipstick Face chained up Dalton's soul. So mm-hmm. he was the prisoner of Lipstick Face. Yes. And Lipstick Face then went and possessed Josh's body for a little while. Well, is that him though? I see a lot of different demons crawling out of his dorm drawers and what have you. I feel like those are just opportunist demons that possess him. I think it was Lipstick Face and here's why. Because now Josh goes into the further and he starts to rescue Dalton. And then the demon who is in Dalton's body leaves Dalton's body and goes back. This is much like in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 when the Freddy skeleton is fighting those people in the car yard and then something's happening in the dream world. Freddy has to take his attention back to it so the bones disappear and Freddy goes back to the dream world. Here, because Dalton is getting free of the chains, Lipstick Face must vacate Dalton's body and return to the further to try and keep Dalton chained up. And does the lipstick face want to finish the job with Chris? Because we do have some pretty good moments where she's plugging Christmas lights, you know, in and out. And it's the flicker on Josh's face is telling us he's possessed. This is why we know that she's in danger of being choked again. But I feel like this moment is really abstracted. And in the end, I don't even really know what happened. But you're telling me lipstick leaves and she just, what, is standing there holding Christmas lights? Yes, that's exactly what happens is Dalton falls over unconscious or his body 
body does because Lipstick Face has returned to the further. Okay. I feel like you want that moment to be scarier. And again, more with Chris, please. We know her only as a figure of comedy, and I would have liked to have known her attraction repulsion to death and the further. And I think there probably was an intention to do so, but it got lost here in this finale that, yes. Okay, so Josh, why did he start to astral project? I don't even really understand. Like, Renee sits him down and says, by the way, we did this to you. And the next thing I know, he's wandering around in the further fog with little Dalton, like childhood Dalton and a lantern. Well, I have a question. When did Rose Byrne get the ability to hypnotize people? I mean, anybody can do it. Art teachers. Do you just need the metronome? Yes. Yeah. And what happens is Foster runs in and says Dalton is having memories of someone attacking him with a hammer. And that's enough for them to know that Dalton's soul is in trouble and Josh has to hurry into the further to rescue him. And because of what I will call artistic douchebaggery, we're just going <laughs> to replay scenes from part two with childhood Dalton and adult Josh. Yeah, this doesn't work for me at all. And this is the climax of the movie. I want to point out that this is everything we've been building towards. Yes. And the first time I'm watching this movie, I'm checking my watch and I'm like, shouldn't we be in the climax by now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When is the climax coming? It is a very anticlimactic climax. Right. Because we all know the climax has to involve the lipstick face demon, but it really doesn't. And that is the stunner. Well, he is here. And I do want to call out, they've redesigned him. There's far less red on his face, far more black on his face. He no longer looks like a bad Darth Maul cosplayer at Comic-Con. He now looks more smeary, kind of like one of Dalton's paintings, like the stuff's been smeared on him instead of painted with fine lines. But still played by the composer. I want to point out that Joseph Bashira again, got the gig because he was doing the music and just Blumhouse they just pull you in like from behind the scenes suddenly you're an actor same lipstick face we've had since 2010. Okay, but I noticed that they redesigned Lipstick Face, but did they also make him like kind of balding on top? Is that mm -hmm. new? Because Okay, because I'm like, okay, he's middle-aged now. Did he age? What's going on here? As Stuart just said, same actor for 10 years. That doesn't mean same hairline for 10 years. That's true. But they got prosthetics. And I think what we're all getting at in making our loving little jokes is we would like to know what the hell is going on, right? Five movies in, you had this scowling Darth Maul and you've told us almost nothing. And then this is the movie to tell us, right? This is the one that's going to wrap it all up. What does he want? How do we defeat him? All we get is not even him, but like we know it's him but like he's clawing at the red door and Josh is trying to keep it shut and Dalton goes back into his body and paints over the red door in his painting and that seals the demon away forever. And did you guys notice oh the sound in the scene I don't know if it was score or sound effects it sounded like a tea kettle was going off in the background it was yes. this high pitched whine and oh my god did that get on my nerves it felt like my tinnitus came back. Yeah right it's a hearing test the older members of the audience probably won't even notice it. But yes, there is a high-pitched whine over some of these moments. But again, what is the point? So Lipstick Face is just a representation of angry fathers? 
because I don't want to forget about Veilhead. Josh was not possessed by Lipstick Face. Lipstick Face had nothing to do with the gender-confused child who ended up putting on a veil and possessing Josh. Correct. It's just that the men in that family, the Lamberts, are able to go into the further, and so they are magnets, and a different demon attaches itself to each one of them. I'm guessing whatever attached itself to Josh's dad was yet another demon as yet unexplored. Yeah, and not by this movie either, because they have this moment where, okay, there's Ben again, and father and son hug, and all right, good. That's good enough. He's not a monster. He doesn't attack him anymore. That's all he wanted to do. And I didn't understand this at all, because he had been attacking him the rest of the movie, and then here, he's bathed in a white light, and I'm like, so is this whole thing that Josh's dad is finally going to heaven? Oh, wait, he's turned into a lantern? Yeah. Is that what happened? Did he go to heaven, (laughs) or did he literally transform into a light for his son to hold and see his way through the further? I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's hokey. It's really hokey stuff. The symbolism is, you know, it's obvious. We don't need to spend time deconstructing it. I get it. Like, family love and all is bonding them. But, like, is this what we came for? Like, it's just really stunning to think that this is the climax of any horror movie. Yeah, after seeing it twice, I'm still not quite sure that what was intended is what we saw or even informative or care. But I have a theory now. Would you guys like to hear it? Please. Love to. Because this made so much money and knocked off Indiana Jones off the box office number one spot, the natural progression is we get a prequel about the dad. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Actually, you say it kind of jokingly, but it is a place to explore if we cared. What I would add is... Yeah. This was a no-name actor who had two scenes, barely got a close-up. I don't care who he is and why he left Josh as a child. I can honestly say I don't want them to explore the Lambert family any further. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. It's surprising that in trying to give this such a melodramatic curtain closer that they just didn't bother to give us any answers. I don't understand why painting on a painting closes the door forever. I could understand why painting the door would unlock that connection to the further, but then just painting over it is not the same as hypnosis and keeping yourself out of the further. Well, to follow the metaphor that once you make art that is about your pain, you're healed. That's, I guess, what Patrick Wilson is proposing that his art is doing. For him, maybe? I don't know. But yes, we will have a few more scenes here where, yes, Patrick Wilson hugs dad, then Patrick Wilson hugs his kids and his wife, who they're probably going to get remarried again, and then Patrick Wilson goes out to his car, and there's Elise. Wait, 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 wait. This breaks all the rules. Why can a ghost suddenly just appear in the real world? I don't get this. What rules? Because she's special. Yeah, there ain't no rules. There's been a blatant disregard for any kind of rules this entire movie. This is just there because we want Lynn Shea in the movie, right? Yes, right, exactly. That cameo of the Google, her Googled class explanation of the further was not good enough. You know, let's face it, this woman is always having to do the hard lift with the cheesy stuff. She's the one that has the monologues that, you know, are all about the heart and you will live on and they They want this movie to have an emotional impact on the audience. They want to leave us crying. And so she is the best candidate to make that happen. I certainly know that Patrick Wilson, Ty Simpkin, Kaylee, none of them are going to get me the way that Lynn Shea does. Wait, we are supposed to cry? 
Oh, come on. Of course. This is all sentiment. Oh. I'm not saying it works. Obviously, it doesn't. No. Spoiler alert. I didn't hear any sniffling in my audience. But I do believe that, obviously, the focus has been on healing and trauma and not at all on scaring the shit out of people. So we have this elongated scene of Elise promising him that he'll get in touch with his mother, Barbara Hershey, after a very long, fulfilling life with all of this great stuff. And I just grimace. Like, you don't want to end a movie this way, ever. But God bless Lynn Shea for doing as good as she could. Do you want to end this movie then with a cover of a song that was so deep in my memory, so in that long-term memory that it's playing, and I'm like, I know this song, and Mm Marjorie can attest I am singing every word along with the song yep. I know yep. every lyric of the song but I could not tell you who sang it <laughs> I could not tell you anything about it except that I knew this song beginning to end and we had to google it after but then I'm sitting through the credits to see if there's a stinger at the end and I find out Patrick Wilson is the singer he had joined the band Ghost to sing the first couple verses of a cover of Shakespeare's sister a band nobody understands under 45 has heard of. <laughs> yeah, I will just say, but you're talking about freshman year college. That video was on MTV my entire freshman year. I saw it a million times and my roommate had the whole album. So I'm very familiar with Shakespeare's Sister. I recognize the song and I think it's weirdly appropriate. You know, like it has this middle part where they talk about safe in your own world or whatever. It actually, I think, is Patrick Wilson's best moment in this movie that he's, yeah, covering this song for the credits. But yeah, I sat through all of it waiting for some kind of tease and I didn't see that the door was going to break, right? Like, it's a black door still at the end. The light might be flickering, but there's no indication that Lipstick Face is coming through. The fact that we're seeing the door and the fact that this movie doubled its budget in one weekend tells me that door is going to bust. But when it does, other people will be there, right? Like, this is Patrick Wilson final. Rose Byrne, right? Maybe... Dalton, maybe you give him the whole movie, although I would argue not a leading man. (laughs) Well, I'm sure we're going to find out. I'm positive that what Jason Blum said will backtrack after this movie's grosses, but do we want it to? Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend opening Insidious's Red Door? Marjorie. Oh, man. This movie was kind of messy. It didn't give us what we wanted because, I mean, I think after four other movies, we need to know more about what's going on. We have no motivation for anybody. The only one we got motivation for kind of was Veilhead, but that was really kind of loose in some ways. And incredibly stupid. Yes, it was incredibly stupid. Absolutely. I don't know. This movie was really unfulfilling. It didn't have, like, I think there are three jump scares. These are always kind of horror light, kind of, but this one just didn't do much. It was just kind of, I guess you can call it like some kind of vanity project for Patrick Wilson where he got to do some really sad faces or something. But yeah, as part of the Insidious franchise, I'm going to say this is not going to do it. I don't recommend this movie because you're not going to get anything out of it. It's just there and you get no satisfaction out of it. There's nothing to root for in this. And I know I said it Arnie pointed out about all the other ones, but maybe there's more in the cutting room floor that could have made it in and made it better. But I don't recommend this. 
Stuart. Yeah, you know, it had me thinking of a childhood memory. Like, I remember how excited I was. 13 years old, I'm getting a sequel to my favorite movie, Poltergeist, and they announced it with the subtitle, The Other Side. Oh, man, we're finally going to see what Carol Ann saw when she walked into the light. It's going to be incredible. We're going to see all this amazing, like, backstory is going to be explained, or we'll just get 10 seconds of Grandma standing in front of a spotlight and then shoving the Freelings out of the afterlife with no explanation and you spend more time at the bottom of a tequila bottle than you ever do on this other side. That's what I feel like happened with this Insidious 5. They're saying Red Door. They're teasing the idea that we're going to finally have entrance into a franchise that is never bothered to tell us much about the ghouls and instead we get this very actorly psychodrama about fathers and sons healing themselves from a estrangement and physical abuse that really has no place in this franchise. It really feels pretentious and not well executed. The truth is, the Lambert family is not interesting. There's not enough dimension in them for me to want to explore their psyche. Who cares? They're a cookie-cutter, all-American family. There's nothing to reveal. Like, what was cool about them was that one of them, like, when they napped, would, like, dream up of a drag show Beetlejuice, and those demons would chase them around. That's what we liked. And if you're not going to do that, if you're going to make it all about how sad it is that father and son don't get along, you failed. I mean, Red Door, I want to be clear, it's not a bad movie. It's just a belabored movie. It just goes on too long. It's asking us to cry when we want to be scared. And it just doesn't get to anything. It's shocking that it spends the whole movie doing what I would expect to be done in the first 30 minutes and then not giving us a finale at all. So, you know, I probably could have given this a mild eco-over-the-line recommend if I'd liked anyone in this cast. But Ty Simpkin, sorry, but you are Haley Joel Osment. Like, you might have been compelling as a child, but now that you're all grown up, the novelty has worn off and you're just, you're not carrying this movie. I don't care about your pain. I don't care about your plight. You're Linda Blair and nobody wanted her after Exorcist 2. So I'm going to say this movie is a slight not recommend because there's just no further explored and none of the old cast coming back that has anything interesting about them. And I've always been pretty meh on this franchise and meh on all the movies. Whether I recommended them or not, it was always pretty weak. It was always kind of like I didn't have a strong reaction to these movies one way or another. And so, like Marjorie said, I'm starting to quantify this movie and decide if I recommend it. When I walked out of it the first time, I knew I was meh on it, but I did say, hey, that might be the best in the franchise. <laughs> it really? wasn't very good, but having just rewatched the other four in very close succession, it seemed like I actually enjoyed some of the drama stuff a little bit more, and they didn't have the piercing violins and things that were annoying me in those previous films. You didn't want the horror movie that they've tried to make in the past. Right. And so by making something different, and as Marjorie called out, maybe I liked it because it just was a lot of taking from A Nightmare on Elm Street in many ways, and that's my favorite horror franchise, then... It just was familiar to me. But watching it the second time, I quantified it down. There were three jump scares in the whole film. Three, which is more than some of the others had gotten, but three jump scares. I'm going to disagree with you, Stuart. I'm going to say that I actually liked the characters in this, though. 
I liked watching Josh explore his past, and I liked Dalton as the pent-up, internalized jerk who is going to come out of that shell throughout the film. And I liked the father-son dynamic. I didn't care for the grandfather stuff as much, but I liked Dalton and Josh in this. I'll give you Josh. I'll never give you Dalton. I went along with him. I liked him as an art student. I don't know that I want him to carry a movie without Josh co-headlining. Uh, yeah, you want part six with just Dalton? No, I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. But the plot of this movie is messy as one of Dalton's shock drawings. It's smeared, belabored. I kind of wish that teacher would have walked into the screenwriter's room and said, put your script on the board. Now tear it up. Yeah. Write another yeah. draft. <laughs> yeah. Said that to Patrick Wilson particularly. And the movie is just so poorly paced that I was clock watching both times I watched it. And I was surprised that it felt as belabored as it was and how the climax felt so anticlimactic. So I'm getting a pattern here. The even numbered insidious movies get eked over the edge to recommend and the odd numbered insidious movies get eked over the edge to not recommend this is a not recommend for insidious five mm, okay if i had to rank them i would say again weirdly enough three and four have actually improved slightly i would say that again the lynn shea effect what she's done with specs and tucker you know that should be what continues it makes you wonder how good poltergeist three had been if it had just been about tangina and not carol ann like that's your star. Three and four. If you got to do the Lamberts, one and then five and then never do two. It's just terrible. But that's where I'd rank it. Three, four, one, five, two. <laughs> I do two as the, my top, four next, then five, three, one in that order. One being the worst of the series. One is the worst. That's strange. Not three. Usually people have the most hate for three. I know, but I liked three with the car crash. I liked the yeah. knocking game. It's a messy film and I don't recommend it, but of the not recommends. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just surprised because I feel like three gets all the hate. You've reserved all the hate for the first movie that people like. What about you, Marjorie? You got any standout order? I kind of like two mainly because of the Lin Shea parts and it was corny and hokey as hell but when she's retracing the steps with Josh when he was little and he said I'll show you and she says oh now that's what that was about I don't know I kind of like that one was kind of fun so I'd probably do one two four three and five Okay, so this is the worst. Yeah, this is the worst because it was the least interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was no suspense about anything in this movie. And I think that's by design. The weird thing is that was a self-inflicted injury. It's like Patrick Wilson says, we're never doing anything scary in this movie. Or maybe three things. I'll give you that. There's like three jump scares. I feel like he has the talent to have done it, but he just said, I'm not interested. I'm making art. What he specifically said is we're never going to top the scene of Lipstick Face behind me in, in City. Mm. one that James Wan did. It can't be topped, so not even try. Let's try doing different type of horror instead of trying to just recreate the jump scare from part one that was so good. Well, again, yes, that is the best moment in any Insidious movie, so he's right about that, and he's right that they didn't replicate it. They didn't get anywhere near it, and I'm not sure whether they... To say you're not going to try means that maybe you shouldn't try to be a director then. That's all I can say. You know, God bless him. He wanted to try it out. I'm curious to know if he even wants to direct again. I don't think he'd be asked. 
He does. Yeah, he said he views this as the first step of a new path for him, not the only step on that path. And you know what? Hollywood loves an earner more than what the critics say. They like someone who can bring in some money, so I think they'll give him a chance to do another one if he wants to. Another film. I don't know if he wants another Insidious, but... I don't think Insidious wants him to do the next one. I mean, again, you want someone that's going to be scarier. This one gets by on sentimentality, and I guess if you have any love for the Lamberts, you probably will feel that this is the last, you know, time you're going to see them. But mm, certainly, if you want that youth audience, next time, you got to have youthful characters that are fun and exciting and engaged. Well, meanwhile, what's next for us is your mission, if you choose to accept it, is join us next Tuesday. We've got another new release film. We just are constantly reviewing new releases right now. Ethan Hunt is back. Tom Cruise doing scarier things than anything in this Insidious film. Practical stunts in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah, I'm laughing at the Patrick Wilson version where he's just sitting around talking with his wife the whole time, complaining that he's been in a fog. No, we're not going to get that movie. It's going to be stunts a go-go, and I'm looking forward to it. Tom Cruise is a lot of fun when he wants to put his life on the line for a, a good camera shot. And this movie looks replete with this kind of imagery. And yeah, I'm watching all the old movies, getting excited about it. Can't wait to get to, I guess it's only a part one, but whatever Dead Reckoning is going to be, we're going to get the start of it next week. Meanwhile, this Friday, if you are a gold level donor, we continue biting into shark films with The Shallows. Blake Lively in this one. Yeah, a big hit. Back from 2016. Yeah, it's Blake Lively, Gossip Girl versus a Great White. Doesn't sound like much of a match. My money's on the shark, but we'll see who wins this Friday. And a note for those who are supporters of us. Yes, our donation drive is going on where if you're a silver level donor, you get to join us and hear reviews of the Piranha series of films. If you go gold, you get a bunch of shark movies. This is $25 or more. Open Water, The Reef, The Shallows, and then in coming weeks, 47 Meters Down 1 and 2, and The Meg 1 and 2. And if you go platinum, that's $35 or more. We're going to be reviewing all four Expendables films. And then there's two levels beyond that. If you go Indiana level for $50 or more, you get to hear our entire Indiana Indiana Jones retrospective series, which capped off last Friday with our review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And at $60 or more, you go the Deadite level, you get to hear all of those shows I've mentioned, plus the Evil Dead retrospective with five movie reviews there. That is currently our donation drive that's going to be running until September 30th of this year. But one thing that we've been able to offer for years is if you miss a donation drive or you don't want everything in a donation drive that you're able to get these episodes one by one a la carte and we had been using a service called Podbean and if you want all the details there's a video on our YouTube channel where I describe it but Podbean is no longer offering the ability to get episodes one by one yeah they're lost because I'm happy to announce with this episode we have a new digital store over at Patreon they have just offered the ability to allow individual donations for digital downloads. It is something brand new to their site. We're one of the first people. We're actually an early adopter of this feature. 
It's not available to everybody. But we got emailed by Patreon saying, do you want the ability to allow individual digital downloads so you don't have to pay a monthly subscription through Patreon for this? You just make a one-time donation and you can hear any of our previous donation drive shows going all the way back to Child's Play in 2010. Or if you want to hear the Aliens retrospective, you can hear those shows. If you're enjoying our current shark coverage, you can not only get those shows one by one, but you can go back and hear our Jaws retrospective. And yes, much requested by listeners is one-off availability of our reviews of Evil Dead Rise and of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We wanted to make those shows available to you as soon as we could, but Podbean took away our ability to do it. We literally were unable to post those shows, and now we're able to thanks to Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash now playing podcast, click the store. There are several hundred episodes, and most are just $3.99, and most of them run well over an hour. They are full, in-depth conversations like every show we do. Hopefully, you enjoy our shows on Tuesday. We have no sponsors. We have no ads. We are 100% funded by you, the listener. And you can go and pick one of hundreds of bonus movie reviews that we have done. Ghostbusters, all the Quentin Tarantino films. Yeah, whatever you're watching. The good news is, if you're watching a movie tonight, chances are we've touched on that franchise. So, what a relief that you found a way to to restore that ability. I know a lot of people are going to love being able to cherry pick what they want to hear. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your patience as we dealt with this Podbean issue. Again, if you want to know all about the Podbean stuff, if you've ever purchased an episode from Podbean, you want to watch our video because we understand they're going to be taking those episodes away at some points in the future. If you want to be able to listen to them, I have some instructions in that YouTube video. All the details are there. But if you want to just get new episodes one by one, patreon.com forward slash now playing podcast. Thank you for your support, whether it be a monthly patronage, a pledge during our donation drive, or these individuals. Thank you for listening to Now Playing week after week. Thank you for coming to our Facebook group and engaging with us and for emailing us. Thank you all for just being a part of the Now Playing community. And Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. Now leave this podcast! Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You called me here, and I'm taking that as an acceptance of my readings. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. I might need some time alone to concentrate. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll get on that this afternoon. I'll have to come too. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What choice do I have? Gotta pay Dalton's bills. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please help him, please. Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They crave life. The chance to live again. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. 
It's the most important part of her process. Uh, that's debatable. It's not debatable. The Insidious films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. And do you really believe that would help? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Why are you looking at me like that? You think I did this? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Come on, let's get out of here. Let's see what the impact was about. Stuart, you've got the plot. I do. Yeah, I forgot. Thank God you told me. I scribbled this out furiously a few hours ago.